You're listening to UCL's Parliament and Me podcast series, celebrating our engagement with the world of policy. This year, the year of Vote 100, we're focusing on stories from current thinkers discussing their work with Parliament and the women who've inspired them to do so. I'm Emma Baxter, and this series is funded by the EPSRC and brought to you by UCL Public Policy, connecting the world of research with the world of policy. Journalist Rosie Bartlett joins us in the studio asking the questions. We hope you enjoy the series. Send us your thoughts on Twitter at UCL Public Policy. With me in the studio in London are UCL's May Kassa and Baroness Margaret Sharp. Let's start with where you both met. Well, we met in the dining room at the House of Lords. The guy who was the director of the Parliamentary Office of Science and Technology at the time Knowing that the Science and Technology Select Committee had decided that they would like to do an inquiry into science and heritage, had said to me, oh, you must meet May Kassar. And he invited her to come and have lunch at the House of Lords. So we met at the dining table in the Peers Dining Room in the House of Lords. My first impressions were one where I was actually meeting uh, a living policymaker who was actually putting into practice a lot of the ideals that I uh, subscribed to. Public service, the sense that there is a public good, that whichever walk of life you are in, you ought to have a focus on public good, and that us as academics, we do have a social contract whereby we are paid for by taxpayers and therefore returning something for the public good is significant and important. There was Margaret sitting in front of me, who I didn't know either at that time, who, as I got to know Margaret over the last 18 years, maybe, has really delivered in spades that public good that on on the first day that I met her, I felt that, gosh, this is somebody who... I think, is doing everything that, in theory, I believe we should be doing more of. Well, I'm flattered that May should say all this. But as far as I'm concerned, I think it would have immediately clicked with May. The values that she had just talked about were very much ones that I shared. So I I was very sympathetic, I suppose, with a number of different things that came up during our discussion. One was I had been fully aware that if we wished to see more resources put into science and technology, which had been one of our main aims, that it was very necessary that there should be greater public understanding of science. And I saw science and heritage as a way in which one could immediately engage the public in what was going on, because you got, in some senses, quick returns from it. Take the Mary Rose down at Plymouth or the SS Great Britain. I mean, that they could immediately understand that, as far as the Mary Rose was concerned, for example, that you had to keep it humid all the time and that the science had shown that it was very necessary to preserve it, to keep it humid, as compared to the SS Great Britain, where you actually had to keep it dry and stop the humidity. So you had those sorts of things um, impact immediately on the public mind. I mean, another area that I'd been quite involved with was trying to get more women into science and technology. And again, I saw this as an area where women scientists 
and engineers, but particularly scientists, could see themselves interested in the science that they would be pursuing. And therefore, it was a way of attracting more women into science and technologies. And I think, you know, another thing that I think hit me was how there were quite a number of powerful and influential women working in this field, all women leading their departments in different ways and, and you know, came on to our advisory committee, gave evidence before us and so forth. I think the select committee procedures helped here as it meant that we called the policymakers to account. And for that matter, you know, the Department for um, Culture, Media and Sport, calling them up before us. And it was also a time when the Select committee itself was very interested in the role of chief scientists. And one feature of DCMS was the fact that it failed to have a chief scientific officer. And um, we put a great deal of pressure on them to to appoint somebody. And in 2004, we actually found in Margaret a much-needed champion. There was no national funding at all or recognition for heritage science. In fact, heritage science as a term did not exist. It was Margaret's inquiry that put that name on the table. For those um, listening that don't really know what heritage science is, how would you explain it? Tell us in a sentence. In a sentence, it is the application of science engineering and technology to understanding the materials of heritage, how they change, how they deteriorate, and to help in our understanding and interpretation of cultural heritage. So it's putting the tools of science at the service of making heritage more accessible. We walked out onto the streets surrounding UCL and spoke to people, asking them which buildings really inspire them and why they would like to preserve those for future generations. So I really like heights. Um, so usually all those buildings that have that where you can like have a good view of the landscape, a good view of the city. So in London, I would say my favorite one is the Shard. But I'm originally from Italy, from Bologna, and in Bologna there's this very high tower, Torre degli Asinelli, like Tower of the Donkeys. <laughs> Annick Castle in Northumberland is a very nice one. It's just the ones that still have a feel of what they used to be. Because I've been to ones like Kenilworth Castle, which are just ruins and just walls. Whereas to actually be able to go inside and feel it more is what you think attracts people to history more and like people become part of it more than just a ruin. I grew up very close to a, a bunker uh, where um, people used to go and shelter from the bombs during the Spanish Civil War. Um, and I think, I think it's very important to preserve it um, because it's part of our history. Well, there's a corner shop near me to when I was a kid and we used to go get loads of sweets and stuff with my friends. So I would really be gutted if I saw that that was to be demolished or closed down. If you were, for example, to take a piece of cultural heritage or a building into your TARDIS for the future and preserve it in, in a sustainable way, what would that be? I would find it very difficult to choose one. What I would probably choose is the stories and the memories that people and communities tell about heritage and what inspires them. And why do I turn it around a little bit? Because... We cannot protect everything. We cannot preserve everything. We have to learn how to deal with loss and bereavement. And part of dealing with loss and bereavement in terms of heritage, look at climate change. 
Look at all the heritage that is around our coast and the risk that it's at of falling into the sea. What can we keep from that? It is the stories and the meaning that heritage has to communities. So I would collect stories about heritage. I think I'm slightly with May in saying that it's a wider issue, although I'm also very conscious of what pleasure I get. For example, just outside Guildford, there's a house called Clandon House, which was a, a rather fine 17th century house, which burnt down recently. And the National Trust are, in fact, putting it back together or putting quite a lot of it back together again in order to preserve it. And, you know, I sometimes find myself wondering, is it really worth doing that? But in a sense, it is because for future generations to understand how people live, you have to have examples of the way in which they live. I mean, the fire at Windsor Castle was absolutely central in terms of retraining a whole lot of people in wood carving and and, and stone carving for that matter. We spoke a little bit, both of you earlier, about the public importance of your work. And I'm just wondering, May, whether working so closely with policymakers has made you change the way you present your research. Tell us a little bit more about your, I, I call it a bus, but you call it a mobile heritage yes. lab, which is a very clever way of getting your science out onto the street. So a lot of heritage is small and portable, but a vast majority of heritage is fixed, fragile, and large. And therefore, you cannot get it into a building. You've got to think of, um, for example, Stonehenge. Yeah? Fixed, large, fragile, and been around for thousands of years. So if you can't apply the science in a laboratory, you've got to make the laboratory go to the heritage. And so we applied to EPSRC, the Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council, for a grant to create a vehicle, a bus, which is equipped with advanced instrumentation, but also with very simple microscopes and magnifying glasses so that we can actually take it wherever we need to go on site to do our scientific research in the field. But we also take it to other places where there is a knowledge exchange or public engagement opportunity. To give you an example, the most recent, we've been to North Kensington, to Wilberforce Primary School, where the science teacher got in touch as a result of the deputy chair of governors encouragement who knew about us. And we arranged a day for forensic heritage science with the seven to 11 year olds who hadn't ever thought about science in that advanced and applied way. Three of our female PhD students went with the bus and we parked in the forecourt of the school and the students, the children, were given the case of a painting that had actually been stolen and where they needed to identify whether the painting that had been recovered was the original. And we helped them apply scientific techniques and through this story, we were able to engage them with the science of 
heritage. Margaret, conversely, is a policymaker working with well, I, academics. I, I, in general, I find myself actually very depressed at the degree to which policymakers in Parliament, how little actually interest they have in evidence-based policy. policy. That I mean, no, there's an enormous amount of evidence that they're presented with constantly. I mean, on the one hand, from academic research, and they know far too little about what is going on in academia, but also from their own select committees and from the associated parliamentary groups that, are, that again, are doing inquiries of one sort or another. There's an enormous amount of evidence constantly being presented to them. Most parliamentarians have their own ideas as to what they want to do, and I regret to say, often pay remarkably little heed to the evidence that is there. So just to close, what advice would you give an early career researcher about working with policymakers? I was very lucky. So you have to have a, assume a dose of, of luck. Um, I think it is to make sure that you're not wasting the other person's time, that you have the evidence to back up your statements and that you use people's time sparingly and then use more of their time as they begin to show interest. Get to know your parliamentarian and where their interests lie and play to their interests and then you can engage them. And in engaging them, you can actually also move them because if you can push them, nudge them, I suppose, in, in new directions and open up their minds. It is not, sadly, the way of departments these days to look broadly at the field and to, to, to search for you know, to to do what we always require our graduate students to do, which is to do a survey of the literature to start with, and I, you know, I would be much happier, I think, if if we as a country were to think more about what evidence is there and to pay more attention to that evidence. Professor Makassar and Baroness Margaret Sharp, thank you so much for sharing your experiences. <laughs> <laughs>